I really like stories. I like stories for many reasons. One of the reasons I like particularly Jesus' stories is because he is a masterful storyteller. He can weave a story in a way that is incredibly persuasive, very informative. It just brings you in and causes you to remember. In fact, we find ourselves oftentimes telling stories that we've heard because they've just sunk in and stuck with us. And we've been looking at a trio of stories in Matthew 21 and now Matthew 22. We've looked at these three stories that Jesus told to the religious leaders of His day. The first story that Jesus told to the religious leaders was a story about a father who told one of his sons to go work in his vineyard. And the son said, I'm not going to do that. And then later the son goes to work in the vineyard. Then Jesus tells that the father told his other son, go work in the vineyard. And his son said, I'm going to go do that. And he never did it. And so Jesus asked the question on the basis of the little story, which one of those sons actually did the will of his father? Jesus asked that question of the religious leaders Because he wanted to make a point to them that although they sounded like they cared about the things of the Lord, what they were actually doing betrayed their words. Then Jesus told another story, we talked about this one last week, about the man, the landowner who created a vineyard and then called in some tenants to take care of that while he went away. Those tenants actually ended up being very wicked And Jesus tells this to the religious leaders to convey to them that what has been given to them, the kingdom of God, was going to be taken from them and given to another people who would produce fruit of the kingdom of God. We've seen that to be through the book of Matthew. The fruit is faith that reveals itself through righteousness. He says, "You, you, you have not been producing fruit fitting with my kingdom. I'm going to take it, give it to somebody who will believe in me. And then today we have another story, but as you can probably imagine, those first two stories didn't settle too well with the religious leaders. They were upset. In fact, the end of this last story, the scripture tells us that the religious leaders wanted to seize Jesus, but they were unable to do so because of the people. You see, at this point, now remember, this is literally days before the crucifixion. But at this point, the people were still believing that Jesus is some kind of special prophet. That they would have really had a problem with the religious leaders seizing Jesus in order to carry out their desires with Him. Which is namely to kill Jesus. So the religious leaders had some work to do with the people. In just a couple of days, the religious leaders would be able to convince the people to stand with them and call for Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is fully aware of the hostility of the religious leaders. And so after the second story, in response to their intentions and their hostility, he has another little story for them. You can find this story in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. And Jesus is going to tell this story again about the kingdom of heaven. And in this story, the primary character is a king who is preparing a wedding feast for his son. You notice here in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his servants. And I'm going to read this literally to you because I want you to catch the emphasis through the text sent out his servants to call the ones who have been called into the wedding feast. And they didn't want to come. 
So the king sends out his servants to call in the called ones, the ones who are invited to the feast. Hey, you guys need to come to the feast. They said, we don't want to come. Now this is a royal invitation. The people in the kingdom of this king should want to come, should feel an obligation to come, should feel a privilege to come. This is an invitation that should not be denied. A royal invitation would be of the utmost importance to the people in the kingdom. But in this case, the king sends out the invitation and the people do not want to come. Those who are invited have no interest in coming. I don't know if any of you um, have noticed on Facebook, I'm a creeper, by the way, and um, I happen to notice that there was an invitation to participate in a contest, a Super Bowl party contest. One of our families created this contest, and it's mainly to uh, get them an, give them an opportunity to award the winner of the contest. So the contest is come up with the best Super Bowl party plan that you possibly can. The reward would be that this family that created the contest would actually come to your party. Now they would bring a side dish and their incredible personalities, but that is the contest. And I, I frankly like it. I thought about actually creating a great Super Bowl party just to see if I could win their presence. Um, but this is a very important family in our church. She's a lot of personality. And anyway, if you've noticed that, you might be interested in participating in that contest. Let's just say that you were to create this huge Super Bowl party that you put a lot of effort and time into, and you invited you know, five or ten of your special friends, you would expect some of them to come. What you would not expect is for every one of them to say, eh, we don't really want to come to that. I mean, what if Jerry Jones, the owner of Cowboys Stadium, called you and said, I want to award you a special Super Bowl party for you and 50 of your closest friends. It will be exclusively for you. Have the best food we can offer. It will be planned out for you. Everything will be set for you. You can bring those people. It will just be you guys. And we're going to bring in both teams who make it to the Super Bowl. We're going to allow you to have one-on-one time with the players. You're going to get memorabilia, autographs, the whole works. You're going to get all that. I mean, would that be an invitation that you would want to turn down? I would hope not. I mean, I hope you'd be interested in that. And that's the same kind of scenario that Jesus Christ paints here with his picture. A king's royal invitation should not be denied. And these people simply did not want to come. It gets worse. Verse 4. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Say to the ones who are called, the ones who are invited, Behold, my feast is ready. My bowls and the fatted caps, they've been offered and everything is prepared. Come to the wedding feast. I've got everything you could ever imagine decked out for you to come. And I've issued the invitation. Come to the wedding feast. But they didn't pay any attention to that. They went away. One went to his farm, and one went to his business. In other words, everybody had a lame excuse. It would be similar if you were invited to this incredible Super Bowl party for you to say, well, I really got to go up to work and wash the windows. Or, you know, the grub worms are really getting after my lawn. I probably ought to take care of that. I mean, just excuses you think, what in the world? That's the lamest reason not to come to something so incredible. You notice in the next verse, it gets even worse. 
those remaining, they seized his servants. And they manhandled them and they killed him. So, so the people who didn't want to come, that didn't come up with a lame excuse, they went even a further step and they took those servants and they beat them and they killed them. At this point, if you're hearing Jesus' story, you're just a listener to the story, this story just went over the top. And you're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. They, you mean they killed the people that came with the invitation to this incredible party thrown by the king in honor of his son? Oh my goodness. You feel the tension building? Look at the next line. It says, the king was angry. If you ever wonder whether or not Scripture might underestimate some things, this is probably one of those times. The king was enraged and he sent his army and he destroyed those murderers and he burnt their city. That's scene one of Jesus' story. It ends horrifically, but justifiably. Now let's look at scene two. The king said to the servants, he said, I want you to, since the wedding feast is ready, and the called ones are not worthy, I want you to therefore go into the main roads of the city, and whoever you find there, call into the wedding. So the king says, since I've got everything ready, this feast is prepared, what I want you to do is I want you to go into the city where the roads are that the most people gather. I want you to go to everyone you possibly can, and I want you to invite them all to my wedding feast. It's ready, it's prepared. The people that I invited, they're not worthy to come anymore because they've rejected my invitation. I want everyone who, can, who would come to come, so go invite them all. And it says that's exactly what they did. The servants, those servants went into the roads and they gathered together everyone they could find, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with yes. That's scene two. And then there's scene three. Scene three, the king comes in to look at his guests, to just observe what's happening. He comes into the banquet hall, it's packed with people, he comes in just to see what's going on. And he looks around, and he picks out one person among all the people, because this one person does not have on <clears throat> the appropriate wedding clothes. It says that the king came and he, he looked at his guests and he saw there a man not wearing wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how is it that you came in here with no wedding clothes? And he was speechless. And the king said to his servants, Bind him foot and hand. Cast him out to the outer darkness where there is a weeping 
and a gnashing of teeth. Scene three. Let's walk through each of these scenes and make sure we understand exactly what Jesus is doing here. Scene one, the king again is representing God. The people that have been sent the invitation includes the religious leaders. God has sent an invitation to, in scene one, his people. And his people are refusing the invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. The way to enter into the kingdom of heaven in this story is by believing who Jesus is and God's own people are refusing that invitation. They have killed those who have come before pointing towards the Messiah. They don't want to come into the wedding feast, the celebration of the Son. And so Jesus tells this story to the Israelites and the religious leaders so that they might understand that there is coming a time when God's patience will end. The invitation will be rescinded. And what you'll be left with if you refuse the invitation is judgment. So Jesus wants His people to know, particularly these religious leaders, that there is a time when they will not have an opportunity to respond to the gracious invitation of God to celebrate His Son. And Jesus has issued forth this statement about a coming judgment as a warning to the religious leaders to respond to the invitation. It's a warning about judgment. Although given to the religious leaders, applies to you and me. Scene 2 makes that very apparent. In the refusal of those invited... The king sends out his invitation to everyone. Jesus is communicating that God's invitation to the kingdom of heaven has been distributed to the world. That it has become universal in scope. And that everyone is invited to respond to the invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I have been invited. And the reality of our lives means that God's patience has still not played out. It is not ended. He is still issuing forth the invitation. He is issuing forth the invitation all over the world because His patience has not yet come to an end. And that means that His invitation is requiring and begging for a response. And then we have scene three, where we see those who have responded to the invitation in the wedding hall, which is really a picture of once you come into the kingdom of heaven in its, in its final state, in the end times, and there's this little snapshot portrait of judgment. And here you have everybody gathered, in, and the king picks out one person that's not properly clothed, and then puts on them the same kind of judgment as we saw on those who completely rejected the invitation outright. So you have somebody who looks like they've responded to the invitation, but when we see what's really happened, they have responded to the invitation on their own terms, not on the king's terms. 
and we don't respond to the invitation on the king's terms, it's just as despicable to the king as an outright rejection. And so Jesus is communicating the invitation has gone out to everyone. But the only response that is correct is a response that is according to the king's terms. Now, you may be asking the question, well, what are the wedding clothes? What did this come from? How did this get it? Why is this guy questioned for not getting? There's a lot of questions that can come out of this scene three. And a lot of speculation that can develop. I want to encourage you with two things. One thing that I've encouraged you with several times. Don't ever push a parable to metaphorical or allegorical exhaustion. Don't make a parable mean something at every point. Because that's not what you're supposed to do with parables. Jesus is telling these stories to communicate some simple truths that are, that are apparent based on what He's given you. And if we have to figure out some things here about the clothes that we can't possibly know for sure, then we're going down a wrong trail. We just need to look at the facts of the story. And the facts of the story that the king comes in, notices a guy with the wrong clothes on, goes up to him and says, why would you get in here? How did you get in here with those clothes on? And the guy is speechless. And then judgment falls. So based on what we have in the story, the simple point is, this man had the ability to have on what was appropriate, one way or another, whether the king was providing clothes for everybody that came in the banquet, or when everyone just knew they were supposed to wear certain things to come to the king's wedding. Regardless, this man knew it. He came in on his own terms. He was caught in that situation, and he had no excuse before the king. And judgment was justified. So the bottom line is, scene three, no one, enters the wedding feast of the king of kings except on the king's terms. So you see how this flows out here all the way to verse 14. Now I want you to read verse 14 with me. You've got scene 1, 2, and 3, then you've got verse 14. And verse 14 is like a little commentary tacked onto the end of the parable by Jesus. And Jesus says, for many are called, few are chosen. You notice throughout the entire story, every time you see the word invited in the story, that is the same word for called. So he's making a play on words saying, go out to call the called in ones. Go out and call the called in ones. Well, the called in ones didn't want to come. The called in ones were not worthy. So let's go call in some more. And create some more called ones. And the point is that the call has gone out to many, but far fewer than those who have been called are actually responding to the call. Israel believed that she was a chosen nation. She had come to be called by that term, the chosen people. What Jesus is conveying here is that they are called, not chosen, if they do not believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The only way someone moves from the place of being invited in, which is everyone, to the position of being chosen, is how you respond to the invitation. Everyone is called. But only those who have responded to the invitation 
are appointed to eternal life. The response has gone out. The invitation has been given. It's how we respond that determines how we experience judgment. And the response that we have must be according to the king's terms. Many are called. Few are chosen. If that's the case, I would think it would be very wise of us to make sure we understand the invitation of God and the terms of our King. God has invited every one of us to enter into eternal life, to have a home in the kingdom of heaven, whether good or bad. It doesn't matter whether you have lived a good life or lived an evil life. The invitation has been extended to you because unless the invitation is extended, you can't come into the wedding feast. If the invitation of his interest is of interest to you, then you can respond to that invitation, but it must be on the terms that God has established. I'm going to narrow those terms down to two things. Number one, you and I are sinners deserving the full wrath of God. In other words, we can't get into the wedding feast of the Lamb without God's gracious invitation. Because every one of us have refused who God is by virtue of our sin. And unless you are willing to accept God's perspective of you You are violating the terms of the king. Now, I recognize that this room is not filled with a lot of people who have done the worst of things. If we compare ourselves to those we think have done the worst of things. But if we compare ourselves the only holy one that has ever walked the face of this planet. Every single one of us compared to the holiness of Jesus Christ have fallen short of the perfection of God and are deserving of the full, absolute, horrible torment and wrath of God poured out on those who reject who He is. If you can't accept that that's who you are in the sight of God, you cannot fall into the terms of accepting the invitation to the wedding feast. You may think you're better than the next person, but the bottom line is every single one of us in this room are deserving of complete and total separation from God because of our sin against Him. All of us. I don't know if you get tired of me saying that. I mean, I've said it several weeks now. I don't know if you go home and say, good night, he's on us. Can the guy get off of this hell and damnation stuff? Some of you probably have said that. 
I will never stop proclaiming the reason that we need salvation. Because listen, if we diminish our sinfulness, we diminish the glory of the cross. If we don't see our desperate need for Christ, we don't see the marvelous provision of Jesus and His salvation. We have to accept that we are despicable in our sin so that we might accept the term of God's provision in the invitation. If we don't see it that way, I promise you, we will end up making this all about our terms and not God's terms. We cannot pass term number one. You and I are sinners in the sight of God. Term number two. This invitation is received through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the invitation is a gift of grace on the basis of Jesus Christ dying for our sin, receiving the full wrath of God in our place. Rising from the dead, overcoming sin and death, so that He might deliver an invitation that can be received through faith. This invitation is received through faith because it's an invitation that's a gift of grace on the basis of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Term number two. It's one by faith. You can't receive this invitation just because you attend church. You can't receive this invitation because you try to be a better person. This is not an invitation that can be received on your terms. It's one that must be received according to the king's terms. And the terms are, the only way you're getting into the wedding feast of the Lamb is if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now I want to be clear, there are two things about this faith that are defining. Here they are. Number one, this faith that is a saving faith gets you into the wedding feast is a faith that is visible. It's demonstrated. It's obvious that it exists in the one who has this faith. Number two, it's a faith that endures. It's a faith that lasts through a lifetime. I'm not telling you that it's a faith that's perfect. I'm telling you it's a faith that endures. It begins at a point in time and because it is saving faith, it begins to be demonstrated in your life increasingly over your lifetime. And by the end of your lifetime, you look back and say, that faith that began in that moment that resulted in my justification has lasted a lifetime because that faith was entry into the kingdom of heaven and it changed the rest of my life. It is a faith that's evident and a faith that endures. If it doesn't contain those two characteristics, it's not in the king's terms. It's on your own terms. And you're not getting in on your own terms. James, in his letter, writes a little bit about this kind of faith. And in chapter 2, he uses the person of Rahab as an example, an illustration of this kind of faith. The story of Rahab is that she was in the city of Jericho, a prostitute. She is a foreigner and a woman of wickedness living in a city that God has deemed to be destroyed because of their rejection of Him and their wickedness. 
she learns of what's happening. The spies come in to check out Jericho. They come to her house and she basically says, I want to be saved from what your God is going to do. I believe in your God and what He is going to do to our city. And she changes loyalties. She shifts her loyalty from the king of Jericho to the king of kings, the God of Israel. And she gives and pledges her faithfulness to these spies. And she asks that she would be saved from the coming judgment. And because her faith in the God of Israel, Rahab and all her family is saved. She does exactly what they tell her to do. She demonstrates this faith in the God of Israel in everything she does in that whole story. You know, the beauty of that story is it doesn't end in that moment. Nor does Rahab's faith. She is delivered. She and all her family. and She becomes a part of the people of God. So much so that she marries a man from Israel. A man named Salmon. And she lives out a life of faith in such a way that she raises a son to be a son who believes in and follows the God Most High. His name, Boaz. You probably remember that he married another foreigner named Ruth. And that they had a son named Obed. And they had a son named Jesse. And they had a son named David. King of Israel. You see, Rahab's faith was evident. And it lasted a lifetime. That is the kind of faith that receives the invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The invitation has been given. And the response must be according to the terms of the King. Based upon this little story that Jesus Christ told, I hope you'll consider two things this morning. Number one, I hope you'll consider why Jesus told this story and how His telling of this story relates to your life. If you noticed in the story, this is not a very comforting story. I mean, the people who refuse the invitation, they're killed and their city is burned down. Not good. The guy who comes into the wedding not wearing the right wedding, wedding clothes. He's bound hand and foot, thrown out into a place we don't want to go. This is not a comforting story. This is a story embedded with warnings of judgment that are meant to move us to a decision to follow Christ. This story is not meant to make any one of us in this room comfortable or assured of our having accepted the invitation. This is a story that's meant to make every one of us urgent about making sure that we are receiving the invitation and responding to it now. Do you see the difference? If you miss Jesus' warnings here, then you'll think that they don't apply to you because you've already accepted 
the invitation and responded to it. And what I'm telling you here is Jesus is talking to a group of people who believe for good reason that they've already accepted the invitation. And Jesus is saying, you guys haven't because it's been on your own terms. Don't fall into that trap. This is a warning that's meant to move us all, no matter how assured we may be, to move us all to a present state of urgent response to the invitation of Christ, making sure that our lives are rooted in faith and we're following Jesus Christ. We do not want to miss this invitation. And so we should respond together, making sure that we are not. And the best way for you to evaluate that in your own life is to ask yourself the question before the Lord, Lord, is there any area of my life where I am operating on the basis of my own terms instead of your terms? Is there any area of my life where I'm living by my own terms without respect to the terms you've clearly laid out in your Word? Is there anything in me that's not fitting Before you, is there anything in me that is not by faith and by sight? Lord, would you continue to work in me to make me a person who's responding to Jesus Christ on your terms, not my terms? Listen, I don't want any one of us in this place to get to the wedding feast of the Lamb and have God say to us, "Um, how is it that you think you can come in here? And for us to start naming all the reasons and for God to say, stop. Those are not my terms. You looked like you responded. But your response was on your own terms, not mine. You do not want to be caught on the day of judgment having lived this life according to your own terms. Make sure that you are yielding to the Lord to live according to His terms. And His terms are real simple. Are you living your life on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again that you might demonstrate righteousness? Are you living by faith? The second consideration this morning on the base of the story. If you are on your way to the wedding feast, and let me tell you, I celebrate that we as a church are continually being given opportunity in this place together to respond to the Lord in faith as a people on their way to the wedding feast. I love that. And I want to keep being like that here. So if we're on our way to the wedding feast and we understand the impact of this story, it would be wise if we would respond to this story by inviting as many people as we can to come to that feast with us. Because the bottom line is, judgment is coming, and it will be severe. In Revelation chapter 19, when we are told about the judgment return of Christ, he is described as a valiant warrior wearing a robe that is soaked in the blood of his enemies. Judgment that Jesus Christ brings, will be severe. And we need to be inviting as many people as we can to come to the marriage feast of the Lamb so that we might all together, in unison, declare 
the, the truth of God's Word. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Rejoice and have great joy and give glory to Him because the marriage feast of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. We want to be a part of that declaration and we want to bring as many people as we can to join us in that praise to the groom, the King of kings, the Lamb of God, the One who is making us ready for His return. Will you make those considerations today?